Welcome to the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where you can learn to avoid the downs and savor the ups. Here, 40-year veteran attorney Paul Samico will entertain you and help you understand the law in areas we might all face. Brushes with the police? Oh boy. Family disputes? Oh no. An injury and accident situations? Ouch. And now, here's Paul. Welcome to the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where I always, always, in life and in the law, want you to avoid the downs and savor the ups. I am your host, attorney Paul Samico, and I am thrilled to be able to give you information today, Wednesday, which I call Wrongdoer Wednesdays, information about the differences in the law between murder and manslaughter. I'm going to explain these, but the point of today's show is to talk about a special situation where individuals claim that they weren't in the right mind because of what in the law is called heat of passion. Yes, heat of passion, defense to killing somebody. If it is sustained, that means if it is agreed that a killing occurred in the heat of passion, then the punishment will be less. So I will show you uh, by reference to going back to where you normally listen to podcasts such as mine, Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, or even on my own here uh, podcast website, thelegalmerrygoround.com, that I've kind of talked about this before, not the heat of passion, uh, reduction in sentencing, or reduction in punishment uh, aspect, but the concept of murder and manslaughter. I talked about this on Wednesday, October the 21st in episode 18. So if you're interested in getting a real good sense of this concept and this subject, go back and listen to that one after you hear today's podcast show. I want to just give some introductory definitions so that we're all on the same page as I move forward to get to the heat of passion concept. Murder, manslaughter, first degree, second degree, voluntary, involuntary, all these words are thrown around. You see them sometimes in the newspapers. You watch the TV shows, the cop shows, and the court shows at night, and you hear these phrases. But do you know what they mean, really? Do you know the distinctions? Well, to help make sense of the degrees of murder and discussing manslaughter, I'm going to start with the most serious crime in what I'll call this spectrum. I'm also going to pinpoint exactly what differs between a first and a second degree murder and manslaughter charges. So first degree murder requires that a person called the defendant in criminal cases plan and intentionally carry out the killing. Now, in contrast, second degree murder, which in some states across our wonderful country, is also called manslaughter, second degree murder or manslaughter. And it requires that the killing either be intentional or reckless and sometimes occur 
in the spur of the moment. The real difference between first and second degree murder or manslaughter is the intent or the mindset of the defendant, the killer, the one who killed someone else, the mindset of the defendant when he or she took the action. So in in other words, and another way to explain this, first degree murder is premeditated. You stalk someone over a few days and plan their murder and then carry it out. Second degree murder or manslaughter is more and we'll get into this with the main uh, concept of the show today, second-degree murder murder or manslaughter is more a heat-of-the-moment thing. You walk in on your spouse uh, being intimate with someone else, and then you beat up the spouse or the lover. Now, let's get to, to, to manslaughter. There's two main variations of manslaughter that are usually referred to as voluntary or involuntary manslaughter. So first, voluntary. This is often called heat of passion crime. Voluntary manslaughter occurs when a person is strongly provoked under circumstances that could similarly provoke a reasonable person and then kills in what the show is about today in the heat of passion aroused by that provocation. For heat of passion to exist, again, in most states, the person must not have had sufficient time to cool off from the provocation. And the cases I'm going to review with you today are going to make clear that distinction. The killing isn't considered first or second degree murder, uh, is a concession to human weakness. Killers who act in the heat of passion may kill intentionally, but the emotional context is what we call in the law a mitigating factor that reduces, if you will, their moral blameworthiness. Uh, Again, the classic example of voluntary manslaughter involves a husband who comes home unexpectedly to find his wife committing adultery. If the site of the affair provokes him into such a heat of rage, a heat of passion, that he kills the paramour right then and there, or the wife, uh, a judge or jury might very well consider the killing to be voluntary manslaughter. Now, involuntary manslaughter, just to tie up the ends here, uh, often refers to unintentional killing or homicide from criminally negligent or reckless conduct. It can also refer to an unintentional killing through the commission of a crime that is not a felony. So that's a whole nother discussion, felony murder, felony manslaughter. There are several examples of involuntary manslaughter from texting and driving to using and abusing drugs and maybe discharging a firearm, not with the intention to hurt anybody, but oops, it did. So I want to talk about a case. And this is a very, very interesting case that has been widely taught in American law schools seemingly for a long time. Um, I'm going to admit I'm an attorney now for, you know, almost for over four decades, not almost, over four decades. And um, frankly, uh, that would have meant that if I had this in law school, that would have been 41, two or 43 years ago. And I don't remember this, but it is, I know, a very, uh, a, a very good case to discuss this heat of passion. So Albert Berry 
was charged with murdering his wife, Rachel. The couple married in May of 1974. She was 26 years younger than him. Oh boy, what is that called? A May-December romance? Um, And a recent immigrant from Israel. Three days after their wedding, uh, she left for Israel, where she stayed for six weeks. Upon her return, she told her husband that she had fallen in love with a man uh, named Yako. The court summarized the facts leading up to her her death uh, as a tormenting two weeks in which she alternately taunted defendant with her involvement with Yako and at the same time sexually excited the defendant. The crime was committed two weeks after she first admitted her infidelity to her husband. Between her admission and the homicide where the husband kills her, Barry had left the apartment and spent time with friends. When he returned to the apartment, Rachel wasn't home. She returned home the next morning. When Barry tried to talk to her, she started screaming, and that was when he strangled her with a telephone cord. Police arrested him for her murder. Now, again, this was a voluntary manslaughter case that, again, was widely taught, still is, in American law schools for the appellate court's unusual interpretation of heat of passion doctrine. So the trial court had a conviction and it was appealed, and we're going to discuss now, I'm going to show you, share with you what happened in the appeals court. Although the defendant had time to cool down between his wife's verbal admission of infidelity in the killing, the California Supreme Court, the appellate court, held that the provocation in this case was adequate to reduce a murder charge to manslaughter. Very interesting. The lower court had relied on a traditional defense, uh, or definition, if you will, of adequate provocation uh, when it gave instructions to the jury as to how to find uh, the appropriate uh, crime to convict uh, the, the husband here. The prior concept, the traditional concept, talks about a cooling down period, which is very short in time after uh, you would find that the killing occurred, or right before the killing occurred. The California Supreme Court reversed the murder conviction while affirming his conviction for assault using a deadly force, manslaughter, voluntary manslaughter by this California Supreme Court back then, is a form of homicide where defendant's culpability, his responsibility, is reduced by an adequate provocation, thereby resulting in a lesser sentence than a murder charge. Again, I talked about the tradition, uh, common law, not, you know, the, the statutes, because statutes are definitions, but Common law is how most law in the United States has derived from. Common law manslaughter was limited to certain categories of actions. But by the time Barry uh, had his case decided in 1976, the categorical approach had been broadened to include verbal provocation. And the court noted in its decision that no specific type of provocation is required and verbal provocation may be sufficient. All right. Did you get all that? Did you write all that down? Do you understand it? So if uh, somebody is uh, involved in this, you're going to be 
uh, right there to be able to explain it to somebody else, right? All right, well, good. I'm going to go take a break and I'm going to come back with some more information and another very interesting case. I, I'm not sure about really the entirety of the Roman Catholic religion. I am not a Roman Catholic person, uh, divine providence maybe, but there's a case where a woman named Jane, a devout Roman Catholic woman, um, went to a couple of attorneys and wanted a divorce for, uh, from her husband. So the attorneys, you know, went ahead and helped her obtain a divorce. Then she sued her divorce lawyers, claiming they should have recommended a judicial separation since divorce is a sin in the Roman Catholic religion. She claims they didn't take her religious observance into consideration. Uh, that case went nowhere. Sorry that uh, her marriage didn't work, I guess, but it's not the lawyer's fault to make sure that it complies with all the religious tenets. Okay, sorry about that. Okay, it's break time here on the merry-go-round. We want to give you value. So, do you need an attorney for an injury case or a criminal matter or something involving family law? Mr. Samico has the answer for you. Go to our podcast website, www.thelegalmerrygoround.com. Again, that's thelegalmerrygoround.com and click on the referrals tab. Then, either fill out the form or call the telephone number where you can leave a detailed message that Mr. Samico will pick up, and you'll get a response with a referral to an excellent attorney in your area within eight business hours. And the referral is free, no charge to you for this referral. So again, if you're looking for a lawyer that meets the highest standards, Paul is going to hook you up. And every attorney he refers to meets the highest standards, and Paul has checked them out for you. If you like what you're hearing from him during these shows, you know he's going to take care of you. So go to thelegalmerrygoround.com. And now, back to the show. Okay, we're back. As you know, by looking at your uh, your iWatch or your Android watch, today is Wednesday. And that means that now you are here listening to the legal merry-go-round podcast that it is wrongdoer Wednesday. Paul Samico, your host, thank you so much for listening. And I'm going to continue now with this heat of passion concept in killing someone that then might reduce the punishment for the killer. I have a case out of the Supreme Court of California. That was where the case was for the first case that I talked about in the first half of the show, but this is another one. California is always leading edge, isn't it? They're always ahead of the game. I have a very interesting case here that I want to share with you. 
this is going to clarify the kind of provocation that will suffice to constitute heat of passion and reduce a murder charge to manslaughter. In this case, the defendant, Beltran, and Claire met in November of 1998 and began dating. Uh, The next year, a couple months later, in January of 1999, defendant moved into Claire's San Francisco apartment that she shared uh, with her nine-year-old son and daughter. The son uh, very quickly got uh, enamored with Beltran and called him dad. In several incidents, however, as months go by, uh, Beltran starts to physically abuse Claire. Uh, By April of 1999, uh, there were already a few recorded incidents, and on that occasion in April, uh, he throws her to the ground and drags her by her hair. Three weeks after that, he grabbed her again and tried to remove her from a friend's apartment. Going around the calendar, 1999 in November, he takes her into the bedroom and barricades the door. The police come and force the door open and kick him out, put him in jail for a couple of days. At some point, he moves out of the apartment, but he keeps a key. Claire obtains a protective order requiring him to stay 100 yards away from the residence. Now, again, remember, these guys are not married. In September, a year later, the defendant, who was drunk, was arrested outside of her apartment in violation of the restraining order, the protective order. Claire begins dating a guy by the name of Michael. One time, she tells Michael that Beltran said that their relationship, that is Claire and Beltran, that their relationship would end over either his or her dead body. In October of 2000, uh, Michael and Claire and the kids go shopping in Sacramento. Claire receives a phone call on her cell phone. Her son answers and hands the phone to her saying it's dad and he's mad. The heated conversation ends up with Claire yelling into the phone and hanging up. Michael says in a trial that takes place later uh, that he couldn't understand Claire's side of the interaction because she wasn't speaking English. Claire explains to him at that time, he says, that uh, it was Beltran and he was bothering her. After the call, uh, Claire's demeanor changes completely and she becomes very upset. On the drive home, Claire receives several more phone calls, some she answers and some not. The one she does, again, she's very clearly agitated and fidgety and very nervous, according to uh, the new boyfriend, Michael's testimony. As they neared her apartment, Claire sees a green Honda parked nearby and recognizes it as Beltran's vehicle. So she tells Michael to drive around the block. He does, and it's still there. She shows, so she says, go around the block three more times, and he does. And now the vehicle, uh, the, uh, the vehicle belonging to, uh, uh, to Beltran, the green Honda, is not there anymore. So with that, Claire and the two kids get out of the car and run inside to their apartment. Michael leaves thinking that everything is okay. Uh, but during his drive home, he calls, and the phone isn't answered. Okay, I think you're kind of figuring out here what's going to happen. A neighbor uh, describes hearing a lot of noise and yelling and screaming and ruckus in Claire's apartment. 
Well, the little boy who has been calling uh, Beltran dad runs into the arms of the neighbor and says uh, that dad stabbed his mother. Well, okay. <laughs> Again, I told you, you probably had figured out what happened. Um, the neighbors found Claire in her apartment, bloody and unresponsive. The apartment was in disarray. The phone had been unplugged. Later, an autopsy revealed several blunt force injuries and 17 stab wounds to Claire's face, upper body, arms, and hands. After running from the scene, um, Beltran goes to Mexico. He was arrested six years later and tried for murder. He claims, of course, uh, as you could figure out because that's what this show is about, heat of passion. Well, the court said baloney, and he was convicted uh, of murder, no reduction in his sentence because of the bogus baloney claim that it was crime of passion. This guy was clearly a jealous psychopath, and he was appropriately convicted of murder. The court said that we reaffirm today that the standard for determining heat of passion that we adopted nearly a century ago, provocation is adequate only when it would render an ordinary person of average disposition liable to act rashly or without due deliberation and reflection, and from this passion rather than from judgment. So framed another way, provocation, according to this court, and I think this just absolutely nails it, provocation is not evaluated. It's not evaluated by whether the average person would act in a certain way to kill. Instead, the question is whether the average person would react in a certain way with his reason and his judgment obscured. So heat of passion, cooling off period typically doesn't work. It's a reaction to what you're seeing now, not an action. Let me just share a couple of other states because I've been focusing here today on California. But as you go around the country, the concept is basically the same. Different states have different little specifics in their laws. In Texas, there exists a very clear difference between a crime of passion and a premeditated crime. Texas's murder statute defines a crime of passion as passion directly caused by and arising out of a provocation by the individual killed or another acting with the person killed, which passion arises at the time of the offense and is not solely the result of former provocation. In other words, if a man comes home to discover his wife cheating on him with another man, and then he shoots and kills them both, his actions would qualify as a crime of passion under Texas law. Texas law says the main difference between a crime of passion and premeditated crimes is that the crime must be directly related to and immediately follow the event that triggered the offender into committing the crime. Using the above example of a crime of passion, if the man thought about killing his wife for a week after the incident, then killed her, this does not meet the crime of passion meaning. He has plenty of time to cool off and instead premeditated the crime by planning it for an entire week prior to her murder. So let's skip over to uh, Rocky Mountain High, state of Colorado. 
Heat of passion killings are a type of second-degree murder in Colorado. Formerly in that state, heat of passion killings were a kind of manslaughter, which is punished less harshly than murder. So that's what I was talking about at the introduction today to today's show. Sometimes these are called manslaughter, and sometimes they're called second-degree murder. Nonetheless, it's the same idea. Heat of passion killings in Colorado do carry lesser penalties than other types of second-degree murders. So here's some interesting uh, language out of of Colorado's laws. Second-degree murder is typically classified as a Class II felony carrying a sentencing range of 16 to 48 years in a Colorado state prison. Meanwhile, killings done in the heat of passion are only a Class III felony carrying a sentencing range of 4 to 16 years in prison. Therefore, defendants convicted of second-degree murder who can show they killed in a heat of passion will get a lower sentence than those who had a sufficient cooling-off period before the killing. In short, killing in the heat of passion is a mitigating factor in second-degree murder charges. All righty, so clearly I'm not going to start to tell you how to kill somebody. Please don't do that. That's a bad thing for them, their family, and for you. But I want you to be able to be the one who is the most intelligent when you're sitting around with your friends and your family watching these court TV shows, these crime shows, the cop shows uh, at night, and you can explain what everything means. Man, what a great status you're going to have now that you've listened to me. I do appreciate that you've listened to me today. I do want to invite you to listen again on Friday. I call those shows, as you know, Fender Bender Fridays. And I hope that all of these podcasts are both informational and educational for you. Please have a wonderful evening. Uh, Don't go out and kill anybody. Uh, Don't put yourself in a position uh, where your passion is going to overwhelm you so that you do something bad like that. That would be a very, very bad thing. Best wishes to you. Listen next time, please. Thanks for listening to The Legal Merry-Go-Round. We hope you enjoyed our show. Tune in next time to get a better understanding of real-life legal situations.